Listener Production. Hey, Sophie here. Just a heads up, in this episode, we're talking about forensic science. There's mentions of death, murder, and some descriptions of dead bodies. I'm Dr. Sophie Calabretto, and this is Demystifying Forensics, our forensic mini-series here on The Science Briefing. Over the next four episodes, we'll unpack the science behind the procedures you hear all about in your favorite true crime podcasts that never get fully explained. Today, how do you figure out when someone died, as in the exact time of death? And I'm not talking about someone dying in a hospital or dying around family and friends, but instead, when a body is discovered somewhere else that could have been there for some time, how can we pinpoint the moment that person died? Jacinta Bowler, Cosmos Magazine journalist, is going to step us through this. And a warning, this will involve us getting into all those gory details of how a body actually breaks down. But first, trying to pinpoint exactly when someone died. Jacinta, why is this an important thing to know? It's all about the investigation, really. So knowing an approximate time since death or time of death gives investigators another piece of the story to narrow down what happened. Did someone die in a car on a very hot day or was it overnight and something else happened? If there's suspected foul play or a potential murderer involved, a more accurate time of death can also help rule out potential suspects. It can also help confirm or poke holes in someone's alibi. And so figuring out that time of death, how accurate can we get? Like, can we get it to the exact minutes and seconds that someone died? Absolutely not. (laughs) Okay, great. Yep, cool. Figuring out the time of death is incredibly complicated. In forensic cases, the time of death will always be an estimation. Despite all the advancements made in science, time of death is still one of the least reliable methodologies we have. There are just way too many variables that can skew the results for it to be an exact science. The best method to make these estimates is actually to pull together all the information you can from the different sciences to, as accurately as you can, pinpoint the time of death. I also wanted to mention something because when I was told this, I thought it was kind of funny. So one of the things you're told to do is literally check if the body has a watch on because (laughs) the watch could have stopped or broken if there was an incident and maybe that can tell you the time of death. So that's not complicated science, (laughs) Um, but obviously you can't just rely on that alone. Yeah, Jacinta, I don't wear a watch. Like I haven't worn a watch for years. What happens when I die? (laughs) (laughs) Well, they're going to have to do something else, aren't they, Sophie? That's true. Just a note that this next part is when the science starts to get a little intense, as we really have to turn to forensic science that tries to narrow down this window. Mm -hmm. And yeah, from here, it starts to get more and more squeamish. I mean, I'm not going to lie. That's what I'm here for. And I assume that's what everyone else is here for. (laughs) The queasy, gruesome processes and procedures. Mm -hmm. Firstly, let's look at what happens to the body in those first few hours after death. Yeah, so in the first three hours after death, a few things happen. So the cornea starts to cloud, that's part of your eye. The skin starts to get pale and loses some of its elasticity. Then when we're getting to 24, 48 and 72 hours, that's when rigor mortis kicks in. 
And that's when your body, like the muscles on your body start to stiffen, right? Yeah. And this is because of acid buildup in the muscles. Rigor mortis is important to mention because this is one of the first things that can give us estimations around the time of death. Again, this is an estimation, but if you feel a body and it feels warm and there's no rigor, so that means it's not stiff, okay. death could have occurred under three hours before. If the body's warm and stiff, somewhere between three to eight hours earlier, cold and stiff is eight to 36 hours earlier, and cold and not stiff, death occurred more than 36 hours earlier. Oh. But look, rigor mortis kind of sucks as a time of death method. There are just too many variables for it to be accurate. Also, it's not the only mortis method out there. I was not aware there were other mortises. Yeah, there's two, actually. Um, there's algor mortis. That's about how the body cools after death. Okay. But again, this method is quite unreliable. Great. Um, then there's liver mortis. This is where the blood settles in the body thanks to gravity. And it appears in white people specifically like a large purple-blue bruise. Gross. I know. <laughs> it's sometimes used as a method because in the first 12 hours, you can press down on the bruise and it'll turn back into, you know, white skin color. Sure. But after that, it just gets bruisier and you can't do that anymore. It's also worth noting you can't do this with black skin. So it's not a suitable method for everyone. But mortises aside, Sophie, the breakdown process gets grosser from here on out. I love it. Perfect. Take us to the grossest <laughs> place possible. Please, oh, Jacinta. I don't know if you're ready for this. Uh -oh. um, so when you think dead bodies, you probably think maggots. Sure. And hey, you would be absolutely right. After the second day, maggots can start to appear. These bugs work incredibly quickly and appear because flies surround the dead body. These plant larvae in the body that turn into maggots then turn back into flies. Gross. Yeah. Also, flies love stuff that's warm, moist, and protein-rich for egg-laying. And guess what a recently dead human body is? Oh, I bet all of those things. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, flies can lay eggs from as little as 15 minutes after <gasps> death. That is quick. Yeah, I know. They're fast. <laughs> They're getting in. Um, on top of this, the body can bloat a lot. So so that's gases from the abdomen. And this can also be when the body starts to purge. So fluid leak from orifices. Mm. And by that, I mean leaking mostly from the butt. Sure. Um, but I think nose, mouth, ears can be on the cards too. By week two, the body will start to look blackish green um, and then brownish black with leathery skin. Mm. The abdominal cavity also collapses and the skin looks loose and saggy. Then you'll end up a skeleton from two to nine months after death, depending on what's been chomping away at you. Like, I know I'm going to ask a question now, but this is disgusting and I love it. Can we not do this as every episode? Like, my gosh. So Jacinta... That's how we decompose. But aside from some rough estimations that come from what happens to our bodies, especially during mortis, they're not really methods. What are some of the more forensic methods out there that try to narrow down this window? So to paint a clearer picture of this for you, I spoke to one of the big guns in forensics, at least here in Australia and in Italy. My name is Dr. Paula Magni. I am a forensic scientist. Specialty is probably entomology and aquatic forensics, but any kind of thing that is alive 
when somebody's dead is my specialty. Any kind of thing that is alive when somebody's dead, that sounds ominous. <laughs> what does that mean? I don't think it's as ominous as it sounds. Um, it's any sort of living organism that can break down bodies, essentially. Okay. Or plants that might be in the area at the time. Sure. And I want to give you an example of a method. So we're going to look at one area of Paola's research, and that involves maggots. Maggots. <laughs> and actually using maggots to try and pinpoint the time someone died. In her work, Paola will sometimes be part of the post-mortem examination. That's where you cut up the body, trying to work out what happens. I tag along when there are maggots because I'm a forensic entomologist. That could be helpful at the scene, maybe because nobody want to pick up the maggots and I don't know, have a problem with that. Like I was saying earlier, maggots can hatch on the dead body within days of someone dying. And Paola adds that in incredibly rare circumstances, once that the body was covered by maggots and the person was still alive. Because sometimes it can happen that maggots colonize a body that is alive. Jacinda! No! <laughs> that is horrifying. I told you it was going to get gross. You did. <laughs> you did. You told me and I didn't listen. I was too confident. I love it. Please continue. Yeah, and I wanted to mention this specifically because this shows how fast maggots can work. Mm-hmm similar story of the hungry caterpillar. You have the little maggot at the beginning. Three days later, you have the hungry, fat, large caterpillar maggot. One part of Paola's PhD research looked at maggots eating bodies that had been brought in and refrigerated. They can change the situation so much. You have a body that is fresh when you put it in the refrigerator, but after three days with 5,000 maggots, you have half of the body. In this research, Paola was looking at how the maggots changed in size. But interestingly, the way maggots grow is different to what you might think. Bugs, maggots in particular, they grow based on temperature. They don't grow based on days. So they grow faster when it's hot, slower when it's cold. Maggots can actually change the temperature of the body itself. And so what happens is that as the maggots feed, they grow based on their body temperature how far through that growth period you are, you can estimate how old that maggot is and approximately how long it's been feeding on the body. And therefore, it estimates how long the body has been dead for. Jacinta, isn't science beautiful? <laughs> it is, especially maggot science. <laughs> but look, maggots are just one example of using living organisms to give us estimations on someone's time of death. Another example you can use is barnacles. Oh, barnacles. If you have a boat, you probably know them and you probably hate them. They are very good for forensic investigation. Barnacles have planktonic larvae. The babies or the barnacles live in top layer of the water. When a body is dumped in the water, uh, the body can be a very good surface to attach to, to be moved around, like a boat or like a, like a bottle. They are not interested in the body. They are not going to scavenge the body. They're going to use the body as a shelter or as something to attach on and go around. Right. So what can we actually learn from barnacles? So basically, we can figure out when a body was put in water because the barnacles are like the maggots. We know how quickly they grow and we can estimate the time of death or at least the time that the body entered the water by how big the barnacle attached to your shoe is. 
Who knew that barnacles were the maggots of the sea? <laughs> <laughs> well, they don't. They don't eat you. It's no. like it's not. It's not like a maggot of the sea. <laughs> they just like the body for shelter and warmth. Okay. Jacinta, today has been a real treat. I feel like I've learned a lot. I've been overloaded with maybe some things I knew, maybe some things I didn't. All very disgusting. Love it. A lot to process, though. (laughs) Yeah, I think we're going to need to sit down after the episode with a cup of tea or something. That's right. And look, forensics is super cool and it's a really cool profession. But I just want to really hammer home that it's not an exact science. This stuff is a collection of blurry facts coming together to slowly create a picture. Unfortunately, that picture seems to feature a lot of maggots. Jacinta, disgusting. Thank you so much for joining us. (laughs) You're welcome. Jacinta Bowler is a science journalist for Cosmos magazine. You can read more of Jacinta's reporting by heading to cosmosmagazine.com. And hey, on the next episode of Demystifying Forensics, blood splatter at a crime scene. Super stoked for that one. The Science Briefing is produced by Listener and the Royal Institution of Australia. This episode was produced by Jake Morecambe, mixing by Dave Stein. And I'm Dr. Sophie Calabretto. I'll catch you next.